0: Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. We do have a cool one lined up for this week. Uh, join us on the show today, Mr. Matt Stevens. James, welcome back. Another week.
1: Another week, another day, another dollar. Um, how's How's it been for you? Because you've been away. You haven't just been sat in your ivory tower in Dublin doing all this podcasting. You've been to insert name of country here
0: yeah I've been to Iceland I had this uh vision of myself as kind of a, a learned uh journalist like yourself a man a wordsmith <laughs> and I've always wanted to use the word intrepid in a sentence I never quite understood how epic a voyage or a trip needs to be to be intrepid like I know if you go to your local travel agent and he books you a package holiday to Santa Ponce, it doesn't quite qualify as intrepid
1: not intrepid
0: I still don't know if Iceland was intrepid, but that's my goal in life is to get intrepid and windswept and interesting. I heard Billy Connolly using that term many years back and they're sort of my dual goals in life and I'm moving closer.
1: You're moving closer. Okay, so how on the windswept front, how did that go? Because as we've discussed before, I've been to Iceland Number one, the weather. Number two, the wind in that weather can be insane all of a sudden.
0: Yeah, it's like going to the west of Ireland on your holidays. (laughs) (laughs) Which I do anyway, so it wasn't that much of a change, except you're paying heavily for the privilege to be there.
1: Yeah, right. Well, that's probably, there's one for geographers out there. I suspect that uh, there's a good chance that the west of Ireland and Iceland were once upon a time twinned as uh, part of, like, the original Panagyre or something, and they (laughs) drifted apart. Because there is, yeah, there is a similarity. But you're over there doing the Rift, which is the, is it 200k still, gravel race? 200k, yeah. And that was won by who this year? Uh, Nathan Haas. Nathan Haas, who, yeah, friend of this podcast, he's been on. Um, And you were doing it as a kind of, I'm going to get back into being you know, a decent decent level of racing from not having done it for a while. How did that feel? Two hundred K in Iceland is not exactly a kind of uh that's not a training ride.
0: Yeah, you know what? I went I went in and I like Position myself up front. That's like, Do you know what? Go with the mentality that you can win here today. Like, which was like, <laughs> I, I, there was no way I was winning. So, I position myself up front. And like chatting away with Nathan into the first uh, turn, which goes from like you know fifty bikes wide on a on a sort of a motorway, not motorway, but like national primary route, as close yeah. to get to a motorway in Iceland, to a narrow gravel path that's like two bikes wide. So I'm up front, like you know, first four riders uh, on this turn, positioned perfectly hang on for basically as long as my talent allows me. I didn't run out of fitness, I ran out of talent at that point. <laughs> and the road just went uphill and the lads disappeared into the distance and in my defence, I did have a catastrophic mechanical. Uh, my Di2 completely shit itself. And I really? got stuck in one gear for the day.
1: No way. Just cut out? As in...
0: I think, it, I think some uh, goon behind me in the battle for position to get around me probably uh, <laughs> rode into my back mech and it stopped working completely so i pulled onto the side of the road had to play around with it yeah and seemed to get a couple of shifts back and i had like four gears at that point and i was like okay i'm not in the front group there's only like 15 left up front at this point so i'm like okay second group here it's actually probably a lot closer to my level uh than the guys i watch on the telly up front so uh, i'm in that uh, group for a little bit and then we do a first river crossing and i nearly drown in the river crossing the lad in front of me crashes and i go down like submerged up to my neck in the first river crossing. <laughs> so there's actually a picture i must send it across here of me like all you can see is my head in this river crossing which it's cold over there and to get it, that yeah. wet yeah, early yeah. in the race is not much fun and after that then it was just gone and as you know we had pete stetton on the podcast here last time out and pete talked about that spirit of gravel I had to harness that spirit of gravel hard because I was throwing a struppy like we're an hour and a half in to a 10 hour day and I've no gears. And I was like, you know, wanted to just, you know, insert expletives here. Yeah. And I had to just reset and say, okay, here is the facts. I have one gear on my bike. I'm in a beautiful country. I've all day to do nothing but sightsee and get around this beautiful route that someone's created for me. So Let's do it in one gear and see if this is possible. And I had a great day. Yeah. One of the best days I've ever had on the bike, I'd say.
1: There you go. Okay, well, you know, triumph snatched from the jaws of adversity. <laughs> the thing, Joe, you know the terrible thing? You tell me a story like that, which is very entertaining and I can put myself in it and I can really pitch you like up to your, up to your shoulders in icy water. But the thing that keeps coming back into my head because I'm a boring as hell cyclist is what gear did you have?
0: Well, so I had a choice I stopped for about forty five minutes and I was chatting and working with one of the mechanics who we'll loosely call him mechanic because he had <laughs> less mechanical <laughs> skills than I had. Uh, so there was a lad with a lot of tools, we'll call yeah. him, on the side. So I ended up sort of kind of taking over from him and we took out the we took off the cranks, took off the bottom bracket and we were we were digging hard to try and find the uh, the basis of this problem
1: yeah, that is a serious undertaking you're not you're not just messing around trying to bend the mech back into a decent gear
0: yeah no it was a it was a big stop it was like forty five minutes stop trying to figure this out and I decided it's like you know just pure guesswork big ring middle of the block so it was a struggle up you've done it last year as you say yeah. some of those are you can't even tell somebody how steep some of these hills are it's closer to trying to scramble up the side of your house than it is a road. <laughs> like you're on your hands and knees on some of them.
1: Yeah, it's, and also it's like, it's closer to trying to scramble up the side of your house if your house was made from wet sand <laughs> because it just gives way underneath you because it's all, it's not even like, over here we used to call it a mountain biking, like loamy soil, that kind of like mulchy, dusty soil. It's not even that. It is basically um, the ash from the bowels of Mother Earth that has been spewed up millennia ago and now sits there <laughs> partly protected. Cause you can't that's the other thing as well. One thing about the rift or Iceland is you like you might think, oh, I might just stop here for a wee. Cause you know, you can if you're a dude. Well you can if you're anyone, but it's easier if you're a guy. No, do not get caught weeing off track in Iceland. There is oh, there's some notice. serious, serious penalties for a riot, like for trespassing off the track because every single tiny little flower there that isn't on a road is a protected thing. And you can get you get ejected from the island. I think all the islanders come out from where they live, which is mostly Reykjavik. And it's like that bit in Game of Thrones. And they all chant shame as you get onto <laughs> And they don't even let you fly out. You get onto a very slow ferry. So I'm glad that... you Obviously, that didn't happen to you. You're here.
0: But here's the wildest thing about it. Like, some local criteriums, I'm sure you have the same uh, experience in the UK at the moment. It's difficult to get road races criteriums passed. They're not passing safety assessments. Like no. we've, local criteria, it's like, I don't know, a four kilometer circuit, it's completely flat, you could put f- 25 marshals on each corner and volunteers stop in traffic, and it doesn't pass this safety assessment. And then I'm out in the wilds of Iceland, I'm bombing down the sense at like 60, 70k an hour, bunny hopping craters, and then I come across glaciers, and I'm like, how is this passed the safety assessment that my local criterium hasn't? <laughs> like, where's the sense in this double standards? <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, there's some serious waivers that are just, yeah, completely waived, I think. You, you just say goodbye to um, any modicum of personal insurance and accept full liability for riding there. It is, yeah, it is a bonkers situation.
0: I kind of thought that was the vibe when you go into the the Rift pre-events, you know, to sign on and pick up your package the night before, and it's in a place where they'll give you access to an axe to throw against a board without any <laughs> waiver or sign in any form, and they serve beer in the same place. Imagine the roughest pubs in London with axes and beer together. Like, how would that turn out?
1: Yeah, and also, I don't know if you noticed this, but a lot of people have to drive in Iceland and there's a lot of beer that goes freely flowing at the end of an event like the Rift. And then everyone sort of gets in their cars and disappears. (laughs) So that's the other thing, axes, beers and and vehicles. It's the West of
0: Ireland mentality.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, they go home from home. Uh well I'm glad glad you're back mate. Um do tell us where did you finish what was your time?
0: I don't know where I finished like if you were looking for me it would be easier to start at the bottom and work your way up than start at the top and work your <laughs> way down. <laughs> uh, I was uh, over 10 hours. A uh, long day I think around the 10 hour mark somewhere long long day. I had to channel a lot of that spirit of gravel and some calming vibes along the way but a great great experience I couldn't recommend it highly enough and it's one I would love to go back and do it next year with the benefit of knowing the course and being a little bit better prepared because things like, I'm not sure if you used a camelback or a hydration pack as opposed to mm-hmm. bottles, but there's long sections in it where it's very difficult to get your hands off the bars to actually drink and hydration packs make a huge difference there. But the wildest thing to finish up on this one, James, Nathan Hass, who, as you say, you've had on uh, this podcast, he averaged 30 kilometers an hour for 200 kilometers. That's difficult to do if you go out on a road ride. Yeah. I don't, stuff like that just makes me
1: wonder. Like, like, take him apart, cut him in half, and see what the fibers in his legs look like. That's just superhuman. It doesn't, it's so beyond what anyone I know myself, anyone I ride with could do. It's untrue. 30K an hour is, because that's, you know, in real money, that's what, uh, 19 miles an hour, 18 and a half miles an hour, or something, which is just insane. It's like when Colin Strickland did Dirty Cancer which is another incredibly long gravel race in Kansas, um, now called Unbound. And he he averaged 20 miles an hour, 32 kilometers an hour, over 200 miles. <laughs> it's absolutely
0: insane. I mean,
1: you're basically on your own as well. You're not really drafting, are you? Because you're just riding, you, it's not the sort of thing you can draft on. You don't get a big peloton. And it's that weird sort of terrain where you can't really sort of sit on somebody's wheel and get sucked up a climb that is, as we just discussed, so 25 percent of
0: it's absolutely insane insane so now in i will be going back i will be taking on some more gravel events i'm sure we will be talking uh some more turf about those gravel events but we do have a cool one lined up for this week uh join us on the show today we have mr matt stevens so i'm super excited about this we ended up chatting with matt it was such a wide ranging discussion where we chatted from everything from his cafe ride i'm not sure how many of those you've seen james but he's had like one of my favorite ones was robert miller now philip york and he has this r- just really human discussion in the cafe with philip york and it's it's tear jerking it's inspiring it's uh, it's oh educational for so many people out there as well
1: yeah i've i've seen a few things with him mostly him hanging around i mean there is obviously those bigger hit things like uh robert miller philip york but he's always just seems to be just hanging around with celebrities or what we class as celebrities. <laughs> and then you remember that actually he was a, was a really, really top-level rider. And there's a reason why he's got Wiggins with an arm around him on the Champs-Élysées at the end of the Tour de France. It's because he's mates with all those people. And so that's the fascinating insight for me is he comes from, he's a bit like you, comes from the inside and now he's kind of on the outside relaying what it was like to be a rider. But also getting, I don't know, he's, he's got a unique insight, I think, because he's really lived it, hasn't he? before becoming a journalist and broadcaster
0: yeah 100% like mass British champion he's I think he's also ridden one Grand Tour if my memory serves me I think he rode a Giro d'Italia he did the
1: Giro yeah and he got horrendous he had a really bad crash didn't he um and carried on he had some injuries he
0: did yeah and I think it, it got quite a lot of media attention that year as well Uh, so look anyone that's got around the Giro d'Italia is you know you're a bike rider if you've done a grand tour like you are a bike rider so yeah there's no denying matt brings a unique perspective to the other side of it, the cycling journalist side of the world. But yeah, just a fascinating discussion. So I think all you guys are going to love this because we chat everything from Café Ride to art to Tour de France to his training styles back in the day, which for me is wild, you know, with someone who has an interest in cycling coaching to look at the evolution of cycling coaching. And back in the day, Matt, you know, an ambitious kid trying to maximize his potential but doesn't have access to the plethora of resources that we have access to now there's no GCNs there's no training peaks so it's going into the wild trying to experiment and real-time observe what's making a difference integrating somewhat more of that into his training and omitting the stuff that he doesn't feel is moving the needle from his training so it was really his iterative process of trying to get in shape I found that bit of the conversation fascinating
1: yeah well I mean that's the bit that I've got a lot a lot to learn from I think uh, but without giving too much more away, I think we should also just roll into that interview, Anthony.
0: Let's do it. Welcome to the Cyclist Magazine Podcast, the inspirational, Mr. Matt Stevens. <music> Matt Stevens, welcome to the Cyclist Magazine Podcast.
2: Thanks very much, Anthony and James, for having me. Um, yeah, it's quite nice to be on the other side of, of, the, of the podosphere, as, um, as I like to to call podcasts and the general environs.
0: I like how you've created a <laughs> word for what we do.
2: <laughs> no, it's good. No, I'm, I'm looking forward to a bit of a chat. I'm, I'm, I'm still decompressing after the tour. Um, and I had a really busy week straight after the tour, just catching up with friends, socialising, a little bit of work. And then I went to a music festival this weekend with my son. So I'm still not fully recovered from the tour and the music festival. But it's good. I've got a week and a half kind of off. So I'm just enjoying a little bit of free time before it all kicks off again. Actually, so it's a pleasure to speak to you guys.
0: Uh, it's a nice place to start. Uh, what do you make of the Tour de France? I know as pundits, everyone's always kind of the most recent tour is always like, oh, the best tour in years. Where did this stack up? How good was it? I think there's a phenomenon. Every, every not every tour, but when
2: you when you're in the moment, I mean, you you hear this banded around a lot recently about, oh, that was the greatest Estrada Bianca. That was one of the greatest Paru Bay. I think it's because. Of how immersed we are in different aspects, of the, the, the way this, the way each race is translated through different mediums. I think it's so intense; it triggers something else in, in us, um, something that we're maybe not used to. So we, we, we're left with this really strong flavour uh, and intensity of every single race. But that said, even taking that into account, um, it, it was a it was a tremendous race. It was um, as a privilege to be there on the ground, watching it all unfold although quite often when you are on the ground, you don't see as much of the racing as many people think. But um, it, it was a great race, but it was essentially two riders taking chunks out of each other, distilled down, one dominant team, and everybody else fighting for scraps, if you don't mind me saying. Uh, it was. Uh, I think that's fair to say that the level of, the, of uh, Pogaccia and Bingo was absolutely insane, and, and having spoken to uh, at length, relatively speaking, Geraint Thomas, it was like i well, I'm going the best I've ever gone, and i'm and I'm just happy with third, and everybody else literally they, it, they were so dominant it was unreal um and I don't say that with any in any with any suspicious connotations, they're just that good so but it was a good tour, but it was essentially two riders to me um battling it out, and everybody else just like holding on and doing what
1: they could. Is there a kind of sense around because you're around everyone, not just during the actual racing? but you're kind of, you know, there in the beginning, you're asking guys about what they've had for breakfast, you're, uh, you're around the paddocks and stuff in the hotels. Is there a kind of feeling that from the riders and the teams like, why bother? Just leave these guys to it. We'll just, we'll just cycle around for three weeks and not fall off our bikes. <laughs> and then we can go and do something where we might have a fighting chance.
2: Um, I, I don't think it was quite as as, uh, as bad as that. But there, Because when you're in the paddock, I mean, the paddock this year was was quite bizarre. Um, the first week we were allowed inside the paddock with the riders beginning and the beginning of the race at the start before the start sorry and at the end and then after the few covid positives we weren't allowed in the paddock after week one we were only allowed in the paddock at the end of the race which was quite bizarre um i think it was just aso box ticking to be perfectly honest with you which i I understand but it made it quite difficult for the press to do their job so i i wasn't although we had really good contact with the riders and staff, it was still quite limited, and it wasn't. And when you're speaking to people through masks, it, it, there's this extra level with which to try and penetrate. But again, saying that, um, there were a lot of riders and managers off the record who were just like, this is incredible, that it's the fastest race, that the intensity of the racing. And I, and I think, just to answer your question in a less rambling manner, um, the intensity of the racing is suggesting, suggestive of not just a great course design, but of the belief that a lot of riders did actually think they still had a chance. Because you can't have momentum like that with just two riders. It's everybody. It's this, the whole level is very, very high. It's difficult to break away. Um, But there was still a willingness to really get stuck into the racing. So I don't think it actually stymied anybody's desire to get to race. It's just that ultimately the result at the end of the day was very clear. And it's not very often that we've had a top 10 spaced over 25, 30 minutes before. Um, and the first place off the podium was over 10 minutes down. Geraint was just inside, wasn't he at eight? Um, again, another illustration of how of how dominant the two main protagonists were and how dominant Yumbo Visma were, in fact.
0: But it's like, there's something like, it feels like I almost don't understand the sport anymore, Matt. It's like, especially Pogaccia, I'm looking at the waste of energy Pogacha had. We're so used to looking at the Armstrong era coming into Bradley Wiggins and then the Froome era where it's all about energy conservation. And we're seeing Pogacha sprint in full gas for 6th and 7th places. And then even the way he carries himself in the yellow jersey it was very non-traditional. I'm wondering how much that added to the average speed over the course of the week. You know we'd seen for decades as soon as a break that was non-threatening went we're seeing the yellow jersey stopping for a piss and the race shutting down we didn't see Pagaccia doing that at all the race just kept going and going and going until it was almost like a darwinian natural selection to get into the break each day
2: yeah i i think i i agree with you and it was a topic that we talked about um um on the bradley wiggins podcast that we that we did um sporadically throughout the tour um and Bradley raised it, it's a really, really good point. It's quite interesting. When you factor that in, there were never really any days where you had this traditional piano section. Although that's not ha- that's happening less frequently now anyway in this modern era of the sport. But um I don't fully understand it now either. I, th- I think you're you're not alone, Anthony, in, in in saying that. Um chatting to Steve Cummings, he doesn't really understand it anymore. Um, even a lot of the, the DSs at Yumbo Bismarck, they don't fully understand it. But what we're seeing is perhaps with, with Tadej Pogacar in particular is the fact that he's been able to do this. He's only, what, still 23, isn't he? 20 Coming up to 24, <laughs> still 23 years of age. Already got two nine-stage wins, three, uh, two tour wins and a runner's-up spot. And up to this point, apart from when he was a junior, because I, when I was in the mix zone on one particular day, I did ask him a question surrounding this. Is it, I, I asked him, you're facing a different proposition here. You, you're now having to, you've lost the yellow jersey. How does it make you feel and he, and I said, "Is it are you learning?" he said well not really because i 'm i I lost as a junior a few times, so and he seemed really relaxed about it and quite not laissez faire but quite just pragmatic and I just think he's been on pretty much unchallenged he he's, he's a really flamboyant natural rider who rides clearly they do have a plan, but quite often it's just instinct. I think it's massively refreshing, but that comes at a cost at this new level He, he is clearly a ridiculous physiological specimen who rides with this um with this joie de vivre that we, we that we it's quite rare in, in modern cycling and and I think it's what beautiful but it but it does come at a cost and I think for the first time in this tour his team Giannetti and his team management will look and think okay um we've been beaten in the tour for the first time. Um, I think he might have to somehow temper and just draw back that flamboyance because if he keeps riding like that it's going to be exploited. Um and, and it's for the first time we've seen it, Jonas Vingegaard beat him roundly in the end. Uh, but that's not to take anything away from Tade. I think they will go back. And Sean Kelly actually raised a really interesting point about the frequency and intensity of Tade Pogac's race programme leading up to the Tour, where he was winning, 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 although this happened in the Froome era, it happened in the, when, when Bradley won the Tour, he was just winning all the way up to it. But I, Vingegaard's progress and trajectory was far more measured yeah. as if he was fresher coming into the Tour. And maybe that played, and maybe Tadej Pogacar, because he's won it before, having raced in a similar fashion, thought it would work, and clearly it didn't, because it wasn't the Pogacar that we're used to, um, although he still occupies this really rarefied atmosphere, doesn't he? So I think there's, there's various, it could be his, his programme leading into it left him a little bit stale, perhaps. This is just me thinking out loud. And perhaps against a rival like Vingago, he can't be quite as um, uneconomical with his effort. Uh, I'd I'd hate to think that that we'd see a completely different Taddy Pogaccio in 2023. I don't think we will. But I think it will be slightly more fine-tuned and focused a little bit. But that
1: is the thing, because that is what so many people have said, is he's going to have to not just fine-tune it, he's going to have to really focus in on what he's doing. And as exciting as it is to watch somebody ride and almost just attack at will and just to have a good time and to be making faces to the cameras when you're on the rivet, all those sorts of things we love to see, that was his undoing. And that will forever be his undoing in the current climate. If you're going up against someone like Vinegar, so is it a case that you just can't race like that? And when he burst onto the scene, he kind of could because people didn't really know how to contain that. But now, they're, you know, analysis must be incredible after these sorts of things amongst teams, and they just look at riders and go, "Okay, this is this is this guy's weak weak point," and you just exploit it. And he's, he's now dead in the water. What, what do you think? To that, this can't. He can't win another tour now. He's he's shown his hand, and this is the right is And he's going to have to change massively if he's going. To.
0: Oh, controversial.
1: Um, I think um, James dead in the water.
0: Dead in the water, <laughs> dead in the water
1: is a bold it phrase, but as as a as a, it's, as a, it's as
2: a, a very a, bold phrase. Very uh, bold. No, no. I, I think it, it's a it's an interesting point. Um, so I, I think he will win another Tour de France. Uh, I think he'll ride it in a similar style. But when you look at the points in the race where he actually lost it um, and he even lost a little bit of time in the, in the time trial, I think a tweak in race program. So he's slightly fresher coming in and I'm oversimplifying here. Although otherwise I think we'd, we'd, we'd be in a 12 hour podcast because there's so much to look into. You could drill down into every single stage. You could drill down into every single, the way he rode uh, his depleted team towards the end. There's so much to look at. And you're quite right. The, the analysis, the amount of data yeah. Um, or information, shall I say, that they're going to have at their disposal to look at and pour over, um, because remember that they've signed Pogaccia to—is it 2026 or 2027?
0: Yeah, something like that. It's crazy,
2: and that they want him to win multiple tours, um, but it's—but so, so no, I don't think he'll massively change what he does because it will take the essence away from who he is, uh, and and I think if if he was told to race suddenly conservatively, I don't think he'd do it. I think he's a rider that naturally wants to race on instinct. He wants to entertain but I think there are some serious or considerable elements and component parts of his preparation and the way he raced that can be looked at and tweaked without losing the essence of who he is. So I don't think he needs to completely and utterly reconfigure. Although saying that, we're going to next year and we'll have a completely different programme. But um, <laughs> but I think they, they seriously need to look at... Uh, they, they also had a lot of bad luck, and the amount of time that he had to spend in the wind as well. Um and also that the the sheer might of Jumbo Visma and the, uh, the, the their disruptive tactics they the stage to the colder granon when they went up the road and were just attack they were taking chunks out of each other they almost forced his hand they knew that they knew that if you put him in a certain situation he would react like that and they knew that although he was in great form that his resource would slowly be diminished and they were they were also banking on an exceptionally um high level Vingago. and it all it all came to pass um so there's the tactical play of Yumbo Visma not just the innate desire to attack of um, of Talipogache it's it's a team knowing a rival and actually manipulating a situation to make him do what he does best even more i think it, the whole thing was like it was like a shakespearean play it was absolutely beautiful to see unfold uh, and i think that's why it is a, it will be a tour for the ages um but there's lots to unpack but I, I still do think that Tally Pogacci will win the Tour de France again in the next couple of years.
0: I think if you zoom out at the moment, Matt, it's an interesting time for cycling that if you look at the amount of retirements we have coming in, this season like it's a generation that I've grown up watching and it's pretty weird watching the likes of yeah. Valverde and Neebly. I'm not going to throw Sam Bewley into the same category as Valverde and Nibali, but I'm just seeing he announced his retirement yesterday Richie Porte end of the season yeah like it, it's a real change into the guard and if we couple that with a couple of other circumstances that are prevailing at the same time where we have this sort of strange that we touched on to start almost strange tactical uh, shift in the sport with the likes of not really respecting the jersey like you used to and you couple those together and i wonder about if the uci are also going to innovate because we've seen you know there's two things undoubtedly driving the cycling industry at the moment gravel cycling and e-bikes and we've seen them innovate and include gravel into Tour de France stages, you know. And we could debate the merits of that, but they do have an eye on innovation. So I wonder, are we at like a, a tipping point where we're going to see some crazy innovation over the next sort of five to ten years?
2: No, I, I think that they, obviously, I, I'm a big fan of of the gravel side of things um because it's getting more eyeballs on the sport, and 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 sport and cycling naturally evolves, and, and when you have change and disruption you generally get resistance it's, it's very natural it's the natural order of everything technology art you know creativity there's always going to be people who want to move the envelope and people who want to resist um and as as we as we cycle through the generations of riders that we grew up with and they retire uh, resistance to change will diminish a little bit and it'll become quite normal so, so junior riders missing out on the 23s and going straight to world tour this is all they'll know But I, so so gravel I think will be incorporated. I I think I I quite like it actually. Just mixes things up a little bit. Um, But I wouldn't want to see more than a couple of stages with gravel gravel sectors in there. Again, this is me with my slightly traditional head on, but also (laughs) I'm quite um, up 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 for change. Um, But the e bike side of it, no, I I don't. um, I wouldn't put any money on it. But I wouldn't say in the next five years we'll see an e bike stage. I don't see what that would necessarily give. Uh, But what I can see is like in the um, the Giro d'Italia. They've got the Giro A, which runs concurrently, which is like a 50 or 60K Sportif, which is race for the last 15 or 20K. And that uses the same run-ins every single day of the Giro. Um, and I can see with the green side of things needing to shift, maybe the Tour having something like that. I don't know. Like a, 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 because you've got La Tap de Tour, maybe there'll be an E La which I can see that happening. But I can't see the pros in the Tour de France, yet within the next five or 10 years riding e-bikes at, at any point.
0: Can you imagine the, the Strava segments? Like, Pogaccio would absolutely nail the Strava segments on an e-bike. It would be insane. They'd be records for the ages.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it'd be, I, I think, as an exhibition event, I think there's a lot of merit in it, and um, I think we might see it in the future. Um, and then, obviously, there is, as you said, I think I think there is going to be a World Championships, but um, and it's already used in... Um, mountain biking isn't it? Tom Pickock not me um, but I think incorporating it in part of the tour right now I, I don't think there's the space I don't think there's the space or necessarily appetite for it but it might actually be driven by manufacturers you know we know how uh, how much of an influence they have over things and it might be that they dictate and there's money around and that we have a stage where it's there's no GC out but there's like a stage where it's just points towards the points classification And I don't, I don't know but I don't think we're there just yet in, in my opinion, reference to the e-side of it, but the the, the the e-bikes do excite me. I think they're a brilliant um, innovation, but um, whether they're going to be in the Tour de France soon, I, I don't quite think so.
1: Yeah, it does rather kind of feel like when they try and introduce something novel, like when they had the gridded starts uh, a few years ago and it just it just falls on its face because no one really takes it seriously and they just put that to one side as a, an exhibition thing and get back to the racing proper later. Um, but you you happened on a word there that has been bandied around a lot in reference to cycling, with um, sort of you know negative connotations ultimately because cycling is supposed to be a green sport. And you you said you know with the green considerations, but pointing towards the idea that actually an event like the Tour de France as an event is really not very green uh, in terms of its carbon footprint. Is that a kind of conversation that you guys have and you got you know you're aware of year by year as something? that is a consideration to journalists flying around. You know, we heard that Vinegar was um, effectively, he was he was kind of uh, given an escort by two Danish fighter jets um, <laughs> yeah. in a private jet back home, which is which is kind of, you know, I'm not sure if he had much of a say in that. I'm not pointing fingers at him, but that's a kind of a little bit of a backwards-forwards move there. So, yeah, I wonder what the kind of um, the litmus kind of test is amongst the back end of cycling. What do you think about it?
2: Yeah, I think it's certainly conversations and... and- you, know, you guys have been on the ground at these races, and you can see the scale of them. Um, and there's not that. I'm not. I'm trying to think, because Skoda are heavily involved, and I think the red ASO cars in the in the tour are green. I think they are e e vehicles, and ASO also own the Arctic Race of Norway now, and that's the only green stage race in the world so every single vehicle because it's so far away that nobody takes their team car up there so all the team cars are given by i can't remember what uh, car manufacturer it is but it's, it's green and um and this one of the main sponsors of the race um supplies portable power stations as well so that, that's a really wonderful model um the arctic race of norway it's, it's a great race anyway it's a race that i'd love to go to but that is totally green and owned by aso You've got to upscale that by a factor of, I would imagine, fifty, um, to get anywhere near what the Tour de France is like. But um, but I think there's a definitely a responsibility because it's it is a, it's a it's a real strange paradox. It's a you know we we talk about cycling as the greenest way to get about, and and it is if you're just living in a city and commuting to work and not driving the car, of course it is. But uh, when you're racing, and you've got this enormous entourage, this this um, this nomadic circus that essentially moves around France over three weeks. Um, the carbon footprint must be well; it must be dreadful. Um, but um, I think there's, there's things that they can change. But I think it's going to be a slow process. I think doing it overnight would just be impossible because because of the buy-in from teams and the way that team the team's infrastructure is built, they're completely disparate, aren't they? Under the auspices of the UCI, etc., but each team is completely disparate, um, save for of course Vellon and stuff. But it's almost as if uh, as a as a collective and amongst their 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 partners all teams have um have motor vehicle partners that there's a buy in there when we start and and then the, the UCI say okay half of your fleet from 2025 has to be green i think it has to start from the, from a government's point of view um but as we as we move through the next five, ten years i think we'll, we'll all be driving electric cars at some point so i think it will naturally seep into the tour um but as something that's so big and so influential it does need to take a leading role in that and stand up and say look okay we, we, this is what we're doing to take steps to make it quite a little bit greener.
0: Some of the riders are actually done already. Uh, Michael Woods from Israel. Uh, he's committed to being carbon neutral for the rest of his cycling career, which is interesting. I don't know how he's managing to offset his carbon footprint.
2: I did see that, yeah. I, I don't know how that would work, but um, yeah, a big fan of Mike Woods, a, lo- a lovely bloke. I did hear that. I, I, re- I read that somewhere. I, I don't know how he would end up doing that, but I think there's certain steps that you can take aren't there, in your own life to actually offset uh, your carbon footprint. But I think that's wonderful. You know, if other riders, um, if other riders take a nod from him, um we're heading, certainly heading in the right direction. But but as for Bingigo's um escorted plane trips, like God, he's just won the Tour de France, you know. If, if you take out Biana Reese's uh problematic tour win back in the 90s, it's massive. And the fact the tour started there, I mean, fair play, get in the fight, just roll out the red carpet. It it's has such a massive impact. And I get quite tired of lazy comments about about wanting to be green when when a lot of people will take short car trips or it w- won't use their bikes. It's like, come on, guys, get a grip. Let's get real. You know, cer- certain things we do and, th- and there's a cost to it. we just got to accept it. It's just the bigger picture we need to affect change. But stuff like that, just relax. Jesus. Exactly, <laughs> exactly.
0: I was out training the other day and a lad pulled up. Uh, I threw a banana skin when I was out training and going up a local climb. And a lad pulled up on me. He's like, "You're littering." I was like, "It's a banana skin." He's like, "You shouldn't be throwing banana skins." I was like, "You're in a four by four, mate. You're in a full on SUV, giving me shit about throwing a banana skin." I was like, "Some people just there's no perspective and zooming out and going, banana skins just kind of biodegrade."
2: Yeah, but apparently though, and I don't know if this is true or not. I mean, um, we're going off a slight banana-based tangent. <laughs> um, they do take banana skins. Even in the wild, can take decades to completely decompose. This is true. Yeah, but. Yeah, but, but I'm, I st- they're not going to cause any harm. They're just going to be like brown and withered and look like a piece of bark, ultimately. So I don't see the problem. But they, they take longer to decompose than an apple core, I believe.
1: <laughs> yeah, something about that. If they're, if they're buried, it's a whole different ballgame. But if you're lobbying in a hedge, it just kind of hangs there next to that plastic bag with some dog mess in it that somebody else decides to hang in the hedge.
0: You could also hit it on a descent.
1: <laughs> yes exactly they're incredibly dangerous we all played mario kart they're the, number, they're the number one rta uh incident providers but um yeah the green thing is a is such a massive consideration um with bikes and i wonder as well like how that might kind of influence actually the teams and what they're provided with because i mean when you were racing matt how many bikes did you have a year how many team and you know all your teammates what were you getting
2: no nowhere near the the level that the guys get now but but again, it's, it's a tier thing, isn't it? You've got the big world tour teams, and then you've got your pro, your pro teams, Conti, a- Amateur, whatever they're called now, elite teams. Um, so I would put us on a par with a, a mid-ranking pro team in terms of the equipment that we got. So we had um, a training bike, a spare, and a, and a, and a so three bikes basically, and a TT bike, so four bikes. And I think that was it. So, and at three or four bikes. Then, when I was on, then when I was racing in the in the UK, we had just a couple of bikes, um, but nothing to the level. I mean, the, the equipment now that, that the riders get is, is absolutely insane. But but it needs to be. It's it's um, um, the, the, the amount of punishment that these bikes take is incredible. But and also, there's always, a, especially if you're a, a big one of the bigger teams, there's always going to be, especially in a Grand Tour, there's always going to be another colourway lurking in the background that. Um, um, another helmet or, or another set of green forks or, or whatever there's always they're always magicked up and a few years ago you used to think wow they've just turned that around really quick it's like no no they probably half expected they knew there was a, a slim chance that one of their riders would get in a polka dot jersey so they'll have a polka dot bike out the back um, in the size of the rider that's most likely to get it so all that sort of stuff but it's marketing isn't it mm. And and marketing isn't necessarily aligned with um, with being particularly green, although although I do think things are changing. I, I really really do, um, but it, it seems to be quite slow, especially on the on the scale of uh, the, the Tour de France. And and again, because it's look at all the I mean the, the race was sponsored by Vittel Water, um, so we had water all the time. But the amount of plastic that we were going through, I know it's all recycled, and there was a lot of efforts to be fair to ASO. There was like bin bags everywhere for recycling. So there's a big recycling thing going on, but just the sheer volume of of water that we were consuming in small bottles was insane, um, but again, water stations and stuff—is that something impossible to do? I, I don't know. I think I think there's little bits that they can change, but ultimately it'll be it'll be the race going electric within the next within a decade I think or maybe the next 5 years.
0: Matt taking a little bit of a left turn looking back on your career. Yeah. Uh, I know I played football in a previous life and I know you interviewed Ben Foster recently on the Cafe Road which was a brilliant interview if anyone hasn't checked it out. When I played football I always aspired to make it as a pro soccer player and in Ireland the thing was you needed to make it to an English team by 17 or that was really it. And at the time I thought I was working really hard. I thought I was the fittest lad there. I thought I was just going, you know, percent more than everyone else in terms of my level of commitment then you know football didn't work out for a multitude of reasons and i moved into cycling and for the first time i learned what hard work was i seen oh my god these lads are putting in 25 30 35 hours every week if i had had that application when i was playing football you know god knows where i could have went do you ever look at that now with cycling and think how hard the boys are working the level of detail and look back at your career and think, oh my God, I could have went a lot further.
2: Yeah, uh, I do occasionally. I mean, I'm more than happy with the um, what I'm doing in life now and I don't certainly have any regrets, but regrets are different than looking back and thinking, hmm, that would have been interesting if I would have done that. But but back when I was, so I was only ever coached very briefly in 1995 and 1996, 96 by Robert Miller, as, as was, obviously Philippa York now, and then... Dave, a guy called Dave Smith who was a national coach in 95 and that did change the way that I was able to perform because I'd never I'd never trained specifically and when um to go back even further to the early 1990s late 80s I was just it was just me and my dad coming up with ideas to train and there was no internet obviously but you'd just um read books on training speak to guys in the in the you go out for club runs with riders you'd respect meet pros at races and, and and so you'd cherry pick all the best bits and find out what the best was for you but at that particular time, um, and then heading back into the, the mid-nineties, apart from the big the, the doping programs that were going on back then, everybody was just racing and then recovering, really. Um, and then we had the wind part of the winter off, and then you started really, really unfit and built up again through the races. So it's quite old and old school. But that was all we we kind of knew. And then you got you had board, Chris Bourbon coming through and essentially revolutionising training, training a lot smarter, training a lot less but training with a a lot more higher intensity and getting getting great results off that. And then then power meters in the late 90s, early noughties, or power meters you can actually carry on a bike without a weight penalty of two kilos, of course. (laughs) Uh, But I never really trained with power until I was 40. Uh, But I think it was the ability to train specifically with power that excited me quite a lot. And I still, I don't really train with power out on the road as much, but I use it on Zwift, and I, I find it a fascinating metric, actually. Um, And I know what my power was when I was 20 20 years of age. We did a a piece for the Lancet um, medical journal. A guy called Louis Passfield, who was a very, very um, esteemed coach, um, did a piece of research measuring lactate threshold and heart rate um, data throughout a a stage race. And we we did a uh, on a a machine called a King Cycle, which a couple of you might have heard of, which was um, basically a, a rig which measured your power back in the 90s. So I, I knew what my FTP was then and that was this weird number. And now I know how light I was, how strong I was, how random my training was. Um, and I realized that I would, if I'd have been that rider now or five, 10 years ago, I would have been, well, I was world class, but I think, blimey, I was actually quite good, you know, at 66 kilos with a, been able to ride at like 380 for an hour. You know sixty five kilos meant that that was pretty. Uh, That's
0: some good numbers, man.
2: Yeah, and that was when I was yeah twenty nineteen twenty twenty one. Um, so back in the back in the early uh, very early nineties, but I wasn't training specifically. It was just going out on my bike, doing a club ten chain gang, um, not really understanding nutrition. Um, so when you extrapolate that, I think I was a, you know physiologically quite blessed. Um, but I think there were a lot of riders, a sprinkling of riders that are physiologically blessed, but didn't get the, the most out of themselves. Then there's the environmental things. Going to France, not quite making it, but still nearly making it. I think I've had this conversation with you before, Anthony, on your own podcast about nearly joining US Postal in the '90s after my Worlds ride, and then it all falling through. Finally, uh, turning pro for Linda McCartney after winning the nationals. And um, but even through that time, it was ju- all my training was purely on just feel. And 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 listening to my own body, so I'm quite proud of that actually. In in many in many many ways, but then, as I trod water into, in in the noughties, and was just a good rider domestically, looking you know with the Sigma Sport team, I still had some good wins. Um, and then, the specific training came into being, and then under and and I just missed that curve, and so that I would have been really interested to see how far I could have gone had I been properly trained but that's not to say i didn't train properly i trained really hard and i I, there was a lot of sacrifices and i worked really really hard but it was i think there was a lot more i could have done um to make myself better but i wasn't the only one at that particular time
1: i bet there must have been a lot of old wives tales around training especially if you're going to race in places like france and belgium where you know these people are steeped in cycling tradition and you know, there isn't there isn't the the nutrition for sure that's one of the things what's the kind of daftest training tips you were ever given I remember Sean Kelly saying you know he'd ball up the inside of a baguette and put it to one side and just eat the crust because obviously uh you know that's kind of like lighter isn't it that's totally true that doesn't sit in your stomach that that was one mine and Sean's
2: careers overlapped so I did manage to I did race against him a couple of times but we were both he was at the, the back end of his career and I was starting mine and those those things were completely prevalent especially in France. Finding cereal for example in a supermarket living in France was a tiny little section for cereals. So it basically bread, cheese, ham and it wasn't what I was used to. But um being at the dinner table with the French team um was quite bizarre because you'd had your classic grated carrot with tomatoes on starter. Uh, which is fine, tasteless. But actually, a bit of uh, and then you'd have your main meal of say the overcooked pasta or rice and a big bit of horse meat, which we we often had, um, or spit steak or a bit of boiled chicken. And we'd either was carry on ketchup just to add some flavour. Um, and you know what ketchup is? It's basically pureed tomato and a little bit of sugar and some vinegar. It's kind of all right, very low in fat. But they would laugh at you. Um, and uh, the the director, I remember the DS one time took it away and said, "You're not serious if you have ketchup on your food." And yet, after that course, they would have a, a half a camembert each. They're like, what on earth is going on here? <laughs> so in the end, I just had to go along with it, not argue with people, because I wanted to ingratiate myself in the team, but there was some really and, – and the worst one, which was quite enormously detrimental, wasn't so much the diet, it's the fact that I caught two years on the trot in the Biarritz training camp, I caught a really bad chest infection. I think it was coming from the winter at home and then uh, upping the, the intensity and, and, and training – with those guys and i'd got a chest infection and they would insist that i rode through the chest infection but put more layers of clothing on and that essentially wrote off a month for two years 1990 1991 because they insisted that i took vitamin c trained uh, and just wore more clothes and that would cure me of a chest infection it's like what and that's that, that that was what they believed so i was like Really, I thought it we was supposed to rest, and <laughs> so that actually screwed me. Uh, and then I realised, no, I'm not doing this. I'm just going to sit in bed and wait for this to pass, and then get on it and build up gradually. Yeah. Um, so it was there. It was just antiquated, and there was no malice in it at all. It was just that's what they believed, and that's what was right. Ridiculously conservative, um, but no malice, just ignorance. That's all, that's all. It was
0: the French experience is still so old school. Like I chat to riders now who are riding for division national teams. And it's still the same as when I wrote out there in 2012, so 10 years ago, and it's hardly moved on at all. There was a guy who listened to my podcast, a kid actually. You probably know him, Matt, uh, Charlie Page. He's a underage lad, another name, and he sent me a message saying, "Oh, I'm really identifying with a lot of stuff you see in you're saying in your podcast." And I got messaged to them, you know, just about life in France. And it turned out he's riding for the same team, Apogee Super U, that I was riding for in France. And he was living in the same bedroom as I was wow. in. So he was sending me pictures and it literally had not changed. Like they hadn't got seats around the dinner table. Like there was stability balls for seats around the dinner table. It was, it's just so old school out there. It's insane. And I probably bought that stability ball 10 years ago.
2: That's that's quite progressive isn't it but in a weird uh, in a weird kind of like coming together of what they consider progress and yeah stability we are having your dinner is an interesting one i bet i bet he constantly was changing his t-shirt wasn't he getting all the food down himself but, so, there we go interesting but yeah um but I, I don't i don't regret those french years it's just that you had to learn quite quickly uh to adapt um to make sure that you fitted in within and within the culture and learn a language which was great um but then just fine tweaking things and doing things behind the scenes your own way that we, that you were used to um, and yeah so it, it, it was great but it was initially it was like whoa, what on earth is going on here um, it was but I, I look back with with only fondness actually because you accelerates your learning and you, and your and i end up with being quite a pragmatist and think okay i can sort I never got upset by it i was just
1: bemused more than anything <laughs> <laughs> but was there, was there an element of um not like not malice but toughening up of those generations, and I can't remember who it was that told us a story once. I've, I want to say it's someone like Stephen rage who uh signed with a kind of club like uh, ACBB, and then kind of went to France, went to the post box or post office where he was supposed to meet the person to take him to the clubhouse, and just no one materialised, and he had to sleep in a bush over today, the <laughs> and then work out in the morning with his pigeon French That's, how to I get there. Yeah, I think that is Stephen. Yeah. I think it's
2: Stephen. Yeah. Um, I, I do know that story, but yeah, there was definitely that because I didn't suffer that. But what I, I was um, living with my future wife at that particular time um, at home, and uh, she would ring me most days, like you do. But it would be she'd ring the service course, and I. But quite often, my team manager Claude Escalon, who's, who's uh, sadly not with us anymore, he was a good friend of Stephen Roach's. Actually, they ended up running uh, Tour the Mediterranean together. Um, so, although Stephen was put through the mill early, early doors, I mean, um, he came out the other side okay. Um, so he would answer the phone to my girlfriend, my then girlfriend, uh, and, and she'd say, "Can I speak to Matt, please?" And she, he'd say, in perfect English, um, "Oh no, he's not here. I just saw him leave with a couple of women." And then to put the phone down. <laughs> so just all these kind of gaslighting kind of stuff to to and and um, not let me. And when I stayed with her one night before a race in a little B for like fifteen. 15 francs a night, whatever it was, a horrible little place. so all I could afford. Stayed with the night, came back in the morning and plenty of time for the race. It was only like 300 meters away and he wouldn't let me race. Megan exactly said because I'm not serious because I stayed with my girlfriend. It's like but the, the French guys were allowed to stay with their wives and girlfriends, but not me. So there's definitely a sense of really seeing if you could hack it. And so there's a little bit of extra pressure and mind games that went on. Um, but I did three years um, and, uh, and the team was very much like a uh, called by son no not not called by son well that's a, kelly road for them um Aubert 93 who was still in existence big Map, and it's various iterations acbb were due to turn from uh, an elite team to a pro team and i'd signed for them but the one of the main sponsors fell through at the beginning of 1993 so that's what led me to going home so i was off i was offered a deal and part of their pro team but it never materialized so i came out the other end quite quite strong Um, but there were a lot of riders that just fell by the wayside they just couldn't hack um, the the routine and and the way that you were treated um, wasn't for everybody put it that way and I don't think um, the methods these days would go down particularly well with with too many people
0: Matt we chatted with uh, Corey Williams from Legion on Cyclist Magazine podcast uh, two or three episodes ago and what struck me Chad McCorry is how deliberate the brand building piece of Legion is and his own personal brand You've one of the biggest personal brands in the cycling game. How conscious of a decision was that for you to turn your attention and say, "Okay, I'm obviously you had a conscious decision to leave the police force," and we've got into that before in a previous chat. But how conscious was the brand building element of it, and how much focus is that for you moving forward on your sort of day to day basis?
2: Um, I'll be really honest with you, Anthony. The, the, the brand building side of it, I, I'm, I'm conscious I do have a brand, but I like I don't have my own anything apart from me, really. So I have my podcast with Sigma Sports and the Cafe Ride. Then I do stuff with Zwift and I'm a commentator and I'm a reporter. But I'm I'm quite aware that I do have a brand, although I don't have a brand. It's a brand that I almost sublet out to other people. So there was no real consciousness at all. Um, I'll be really honest with you, mate. It's just built. Um, But I am aware that I'm in a a reasonably influential position and I do get a lot of offers of work, which is great, especially for somebody I'm you know, 52 years of age and I, I can't quite believe that I'm still doing it and but but I'm really having a lot of fun. But when I first left the police, um it was a big gamble. Um I did, my dad lent me some money, um and the work was quite piecemeal. But I, I but I I did believe in myself and I can't remember if I said this to you, it's my, my Holly, my wife, said, um I said to her, shall I leave the police? Because she said, what's the worst that could happen? We're always going to get a job. You're a bright bloke, you can get a job. You know, we'll rent somewhere cheap. And it was that real perspective of, like, we got each other. And if you don't try it now, you're going to regret it. And I thought, And the next day, I I tendered my resignation to the police. Um, I I, I did like the job a lot. I learned so much, as I said to you, Anthony, on our podcast, um, a massively important part of my life. Um, But... I knew that this chance wouldn't wouldn't be around forever. So I, I jumped on it, GCN stuff, but I was never really aware of build my, building my own brand. But I am now aware of, of, of the value of my own brand, if you know what I mean. But I haven't, I've got a company, but I don't have a website or anything because I've got, because I exist in a lot of other places. But I think as time goes on, I might have something a bit more central with which to build out from, if you know what I mean. Um, so I'll still have the relationships with the brands that I work for, but there might be another quite strong element that's just me and owned by me because right now if you stripped away apart from my my instagram account and my 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 limited company that's all i have but i've got a lot of other interests i just i think life's been so frenetic in a good way over the last 10 years actually nine or 10 years i haven't really stopped to think about it but now I'm, i'm a becoming aware of the value of my own brand and what I want to do with it. Um, I still want relationships with brands that, have, I've, um, that I have trust, that I've got really, really strong relationships that are not just commercially work, but uh, intrinsically there's a real strong trust there. So I want to keep those. But I also would like to explore something that's purely me and has no influence many any brands, which I don't know what that's going to look like, but I think in the next couple of years it will come
1: to fruition. But how hard was it though? When you've made that jump from the police, and you've gone into being Matt Stevens, kind of privateer, but then you got picked up by, or started started at the pretty much the beginning of GCN, and then that became an incredible wave, to then almost also almost kind of do it all over again, i.e. repeat the police leaving because you left GCN in twenty eighteen at a point where it had just become a Leviathan and it yeah. still is. Yeah. Um, and there must be a part of you also, just as a side note, that must be like, oh, I do have 136,000 Instagram followers. Uh, Simon Richardson, for example, only 86.4. So you're doing <laughs> something right. But how? what did people say to you when you stepped away from GCN? They must have just been like, are you mad?
2: Yeah, I think it was. Are you mad? And um, I've talked about it a lot. I don't have any regrets. I, it was an amazing four or five years. and um, And everybody that, work with at GCN, um, I'm really close to, still work closely with Dan. Um, Tom Last is, is a very dear friend um, who's behind, behind the scenes, you know, the brick, um, doesn't do any presenting anymore, but is fundamental behind the scenes in relation to growing GCN in the, in the various territories. So a remarkably intelligent young man. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I, I've said on many, many occasions, there was just a, a disagreement about certain things um, and we agreed to part ways. But it, but I but I think my decision to do that was based on me leaving the police and the confidence I gained from doing that, and and also go back another twelve years from being McCartney folding and me having absolutely nothing, um, and having to sell my bike on, in a service station on the M6 to pay the mortgage. So the so that was a big reset and quite a scary one. Ended up working filling shelves in a supermarket, then applying to join the police because I hadn't been to university. Um, then leaving the police and starting from zero really, which was a risky strategy piecing together this semblance of a career. And then, but I'll never uh, forget the, the momentum, the added momentum that um, GCN gave me. But, but also at that point, I was 43 years of age and I've been national champion, done the Olympics. I'd done a lot in my life. So I wasn't without being cocky. I was just really aware. I like, I'm not really afraid of anything anymore. And, um, and I'm, I'm confident that I'll always be able to do something. I can pretty much turn my hand to anything apart from DIY, which would be uh, ruinous. Um, so don't ever ask me to fit, put a shelf up in any of your houses if you're minded to do so uh, whilst drunk. Um, but no, so I, I just, <laughs> I just have become very, quite confident. And I, I don't want to come across cocky or anything, but um, through life's cycles and experiences. My, my son was born premature, nearly, nearly died. He was born at two pounds. Moments like that in your life. And now I spent last weekend at a festival with him. He's 21, had the time of my life. It's those moments like that that remind you that, you know what, you're going to be all right. As long as you don't fuck up or be a dick, you know, not be nice to people, you're going to be all right. And, I've, and that's at the heart of, of what I do. I think I'm going to be all right because I believe that I will uh, because I work really hard. I try and be nice to people. Uh, and I, and um, I do my research. I, I focus. But through it all, it's just having fun. And, and that's one of the reasons as well. I do work for lots of other people, so if one thing goes and a relationship ends, I can spin other plates, uh, and I like that variety that it gives me. But uh, but I don't really know what I'm going to be doing in eighteen months' time. And I find that quite exciting. All that does it motivates me. So I have one-year contracts with people. Other contracts are just ongoing, but any of them could end at any moment. So it's uh, I I quite like this new way way of living. Um, it's quite it's quite exciting and invigorating actually, and. And every, every new turn gives you even more confidence that you can do other things.
0: I've never been a, a huge Garant Thomas fan. Like he's always been a nice guy, but he's never somebody I've really cheered for in a bike race until this year, because it was like Innie Yokes and Dave Brailsford, they put him out to pasture and they said, you know what, you've won a Tour de France doesn't really count for that much. You're not on the big contract. We can't guarantee uh, a spot on the Tour de France. And then he goes and he rolls a podium and yeah. arguably one of the toughest tours ever. There was a little bit of that when you left GCN, where I was like... I wonder where
2: you're, go- I wonder where you're going with it, Anthony. I thought that's a real <laughs> tangential shift, not even mentioning what I just talked about. Okay, fair enough.
0: <laughs> that's the way I roll. That's the way I roll. It's like Pulp Fiction. It all comes back together at some point, Matt. You just need to stick with I got it. I I felt like GCN were the big, bad Dave Brailsford character and although I hadn't really noticed you much as a presenter, I'd watched you, but it's never like you'd gripped me as a presenter on GCN. But as soon as you left, I felt this investment into the Matt Stevens brand where I'm like, fuck, I'm cheering for this dude, whatever he does next.
2: Um, I, I wouldn't call, I, I, I can completely see, you know, it's quite an interesting analogy. Um, there but um it was never the big there was there were never the big bad gcn at all it was just um a, a slight disagreement that we had and, and a professional disagreement that that's all um but yeah a, a lot of people like matt are you are you mad you do realize that this is the biggest media thing uh, leviathan as you said earlier on i think that was the word you used james uh, big, word, big, big word, word a great word actually um <laughs> that again this massive momentum that i was you know a uh, as well as all the backroom staff and and the the, the belief of, si- of of Simon Weir in in that particular project was unwavering. We've had our disagreements uh, in, in the past, but oh my god, that guy uh, is absolutely incredible. Um, so the, his vision, a guy called Mike Reese, um, a producer, his his vision and his work rate, and then working with Tom, Simon, and Dan primarily um, was absolutely amazing. So when I did leave, it was mate, there were tears. It was yeah, it was massively um emotionally difficult um but um i, I, I believed in what i could do and, and there and then it was just me tendering myself out to people uh doing a few different other things um but uh, i'd learned a hell of a lot in G- at gcn a hell of a lot in the police and a hell of a lot a hell of a lot in the previous 40 years of my life um, but it was also invigorating and, and those moments where you're like, Whoa this is a precipitous drop-off. Not so much a drop-off into the into the darkness because I was in an industry that I knew very well, but it meant I had to work exceptionally hard and I couldn't ever take my foot off the gas. And Not that I did that in GCN, but that was a regular income. It was a nine-to-five, really, apart from going, you know, you, we're in the office every day. So um, I, we had to move down to Bath. It was a brilliant, like I said, brilliant four or five years. But um, it was a massive shift. And, and then I... I knew then that I had to be just my best self all the time, you know, um, because you let down one client and that's it, jo- job done, and there's no. So building trust between different brands and and also discovering something a little bit different about what I could do. A lot of the GCN stuff was quite light, so what I like doing now um, is still the, the silly stuff because I think that's important. But I can get as, I can get as cerebral as any as anybody. In, in our industry uh, and i can get as deep as anybody in the intellectually as anybody in the industry uh, doing what i do so i think i'm a i'm a very good interviewer uh, and i like i like speaking to people um and that's why i think i've enjoyed the podcast doing my podcast so much and and um, the uh, cafe ride so much because i think they're, they're really entertaining and each person's different and i like to get beneath the surface of what we consider that i mean we think we know people but we don't really and, and i think what i like to do is just to try and delve a little bit deeper and have some fun at the same time but touch on some different on different sorts of subjects as well so um so i i i think i've got quite a nice tonal range uh in, relate, in relation to where i can go in the things that i do whether it's a live event whether it's you know broadcasting live whether it's uh, doing a podcast or whatever i, I like using different mediums to interact with people and inform people and hopefully entertain people as well.
1: Within that within that tonal range, it's a nice way of putting it, what has been something where you like, Matt, that was the wrong audience. And that just did you know, you, so for example, this is something that did work really well. Okay. Um, and I have thought that someone should do this. So I'm really glad you have, you know, international or French, uh, French and international hair dryers in hotels. Yep. That is a big subject. It requires uh, some proper journalism and deep dives, and it paid off. And there's some really weird hairdryers out yeah. there. But obviously there's other things where I'm guessing like you would have put a lot of effort in, say, on something, and then you're like, shit, where's where's the audience for this? Why doesn't it work? So what what was a kind of learning curve moment in that regard? Um, I've not had, it's interesting
2: because I've not had any obviously some stuff gets viewed more than others, and I still don't I don't think any of us fully understands primarily the uh the, the Instagram algorithm. It's like, what on earth? Um, anyway, so so I'm I'm constantly experimenting with stuff. Um, I've never had a, a massive misfire that I regret. I've had a couple of things that I filmed when drunk and then didn't put them live and thought, <laughs> well done, Matt. Um, that there's a lot of stuff in nightclubs that I've done that I thought might be a good idea, which never saw the light of day. So I've, I've got, I think, even when I'm absolutely wasted, I've got quite a good filter. I know what I can get away with and what I... So, so, I'm, so I'm, I'm, the stuff I curate, I'm really, really quite hard on myself. So I'll have an idea and then I'll do it. And generally they've been all right. So I haven't had one, anything that's been catastrophic. The only catastrophic thing that I put online recently was the NFT thing that I did with the NFT, uh, Bike Club NFT people, with a lovely bunch of people. I've just backed away from the project ever so slightly. It was just the heat I got um, and the ignorance in the – I mean, and this is a a space that Anthony knows very, very well – and I don't think the cycling world's ready for it. I've never had so much heat on posting an avatar designed by Rich Mitch on on social media before in my life. It was so disproportionately venomous that I, I actually lost a little bit of heart. Um, that's the only misfire, but I don't. I don't think it's my problem. I think it's the audience's problem. Uh, that one. It wasn't like, oh, Matt, you've read, you not read the room. It's like, no, no, the r- the room isn't ready for this yet. It's not. I've not read it. And and, and actually, within that, I, I, I find um, certain spaces outside of cycling really disruptive and quite interesting and uh, the cycling world as much as I love it it, there's a lot of traditionalists in there who would um and also a lot of fashionistas on social media who think the the right thing to do is go rally against an NFT when they don't really know what the fuck it is in the first place and and the blockchain that it's built upon and stuff like that so it's all there's a lot of ignorance out there in certain projects so I think that's the only bit that I thought "Mm, that's quite interesting but generally speaking my own stuff I, I just throw it out there and Hopefully, hopefully it works. And it's very kind of spontaneous, really.
0: I think the NFT one is fascinating. I remember seeing that coming up and I was like, go on, Matt, getting into the NFT stuff. This is brilliant. But it, people push back against stuff they can't understand. Totally, yeah, yeah. Blockchain is a difficult to understand concepts yeah. for even somebody who sits down like if you've read a book like mastering bitcoin or something you sit down you're like oh this is a heavy academic read yeah. like i had seven years in law school and i'm sitting down going sure. this is a page i'm gonna read 10 times before i can understand anything that's happening here so people are just kind of in protective mode with that yeah but just to finish up matt because it's a fascinating chat again as always but i know something sort of slightly tangential to the nft land i know something you're passionate about and i have a, an interest and in, a growing interest in it is the art world we're starting to see a few cyclists getting into that and dabbling their foot i'm not sure if you're following tj eisenhart the old bmc rider uh, he's doing a little bit of work. Uh, I, I can't, My uh, we, we can chat offline, you can tell me if it's good or bad, but it looks to me like it's it's cool stuff. And Taylor Finney's uh, dabbing, his, dabbing his brush, so to speak, in it as well. Is there anyone in the cycling and art world intersection that you're kind of keeping an eye on?
2: Um, I've um, spoken to Taylor a couple of times about his Manifest Butter project because um, I had him on my podcast a while ago. Um, and Taylor's so loose, I flipping love that guy, but oh my God, Get, getting <laughs> something arranged, because I said I want to buy a piece, because I like his stuff, uh, I, I actually really, really do like his stuff, so um, I've already asked to buy a piece, um, and yet I think it might take me a couple of years, I just think he's so loose, he just, he doesn't, <laughs> he's, he's almost like, wow, I could sell my art kind of thing, you know, I, I, lo- I love the fact that he's literally creating it, because he loves doing it, Rather than I want to sell this, and he's immediately, yeah, here's this is it, thousand dollars, or whatever. He's just like, yeah, yeah, we'll sort it out in the future. So that's a that's a me buying a piece of his stuff is a project ongoing. Um, I'm, not, I'm not aware of. I'll have to check out um, the the guys that you were talking about in terms of actual art. But um, I'm quite friendly with Mark Cavendish, and he's into his art in a big way. So he's not an artist.
0: Amazing, I didn't I didn't know that.
2: Yeah, so he's keeping that under under wraps a little bit. But um, Mark and I have we often interact about our art collections. So he's he's into that. So he's the, he's the only cyclist, active cyclist, that gets the art world, really. And it's still very new to me. I'm saying on your podcast, Anthony, about me getting into art and the history of art and collecting art only in lockdown, literally in lockdown, looking at my bare walls, nothing else to do, going out for walks, cherry blossoms everywhere. And I was just inspired. And, and so my biggest passion outside of cycling apart from movies and music is is the art world i've made a lot of friends within the art world over the last couple of years which is just fantastic but there's um oh uh, Carl kapinski um who um is a good friend of mine who lives in nottinghamshire not too far away um and he is a pretty famous artist he's got like i don't know nearly half a million followers on instagram but he's done some wonderful pictures of uh, tom simpson mark cavendish bradley wiggins Amazing. and his new and if you look on brad's brad wiggins's account he's got a new factor bike with butterflies on it and carl kapinski painted those butterflies so he's not a pro cyclist but he's a professional artist um worth checking out you but i think both of you guys would love his stuff a lovely guy suffering from blood cancer at the moment so passing all my wishes to 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 carl who's going through chemotherapy right now but he is uh yeah, he's the only other really significant overlap within within the industry that that, uh, that I'm good friends with. So watch out. Check your stuff out, yeah.
0: I'm going to check that out Uh Matt, before you head off, is there anything you want to plug or anywhere you want to push uh, listeners of the podcast to check out? What have you got going on?
2: Um, uh, the podcast has taken a slight hiatus. We're going to start that off again in a week or so's time. But yeah, just watch the latest couple of cafe rides, the one with Rebecca Charlton we did um, over on Secret Swords YouTube channel, and Ben Foster. Um, ben Foster's brilliant. Yeah, just watch it. It was great fun. Very different. Each, each of them's different. So head over there and watch those. And we've got some um, some cool ones coming up later in the year that I can't speak too much about, but they're very, very different again. So I think that's uh, one of my favourite projects. So just uh, head over there. Um, and there's been 15 now. So there's there's a, a nice big back catalogue for you to feast upon thank
0: you. Yeah, and I absolutely loved the Philip York one, so if anyone's looking for one to get started on, go check that one out. Thank you very much. Matt Stevens, thank you for joining us on the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Thanks,
2: that. Cheers it. James and cheers Anthony. Thanks for having us and uh, catch up
1: with you soon, guys. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Stevens, um, incredibly interesting as an individual, I think. I'd class him as a kind of bicycling polymath, somebody with a lot more interests than just riding a bike. But the stuff that does fascinate me always does with people who of a certain generation is just what it was like to ride bikes back in, you know, cutting your teeth in the 80s and then riding as a pro, you know, 90s and that era of the kind of explosion of the internet, um, the explosion of doping, the explosion of cycling becoming this like worldwide thing, not just kind of closed down behind kind of continental doors, and then coming at it from the position of being a boy from, from Britain and going over to race in Belgium and France, just the mad stuff that people used to do before they had good quality information, all those old wives tales. So I want to ask you, Anthony, we talked about it with Matt, but you used to race on the continent and you would have raced in these teams. What, kind, what were the weirdest sorts of training tips that someone fed you, which you look back on now and you just think, what on? was I thinking even following that? It's ridiculous.
0: (laughs) France was old school, uh, really old school. It it still is. I have friends who are out there at the moment and it's like a decade since I've been out racing in French teams and it hasn't evolved that much. What we used to do totally fast the rides. So I'd wake up in the morning and the director would have me like no breakfast and I'd go out on these crazy, he called them depletion rides. So you might do a six or seven hour ride (laughs) and for some bizarre reason all he would let us drink was pi- like dilute pineapple juice <laughs> i don't know what the magic was with dilute pineapple juice but like super dilute not enough to get sugars into your blood or anything so you would come in the door i would just winding staircase back up to the apartment like i'd be so dizzy my head would be spinning like coming back up after six hours with dilute pineapple juice and i would just like lay flat out on the kitchen floor like dead. And that was the idea. It was like depletion rights to get rid of all the glycogen in your muscles, like a few days out from the race. So then when you ate, they felt there was a way to like supercharge or infuse your muscles with extra glycogen, which is no basis in science or fact.
1: There is I think if if anything, there is a lot, there's a body of evidence to suggest that is the worst possible thing (laughs) to do. Before because you know the idea of like carb loading, this old school sort of thing of just smash Load of pasta the night before a big event, and then you're going to be like your glycogen's going to be topped up. You're going to have energy to burn. That just doesn't really work. There's an element to it, which yeah, sure is great. But what your body wants to be doing is slowly storing things up in the days or week prior to actually riding, and that's the same for hydration. You can't just drink four pints of water in the morning and think <laughs> you're going to be good to go for a 35 degree ride for six hours. Your body's just going, cool, cheers for that. Now I'm just full of water. I'll have to get that out at some point. And yeah, then when you wee. Your urine looks clear, and you think, "Oh, nice, I'm hydrated." No, you're not. Your body's just gone; it's gone in one hole and out the other, <laughs> and I think it's exactly the same with like, That's the and also the word depletion. <laughs> I feel like that shouldn't be linked to the idea of an, a top performing athlete.
0: And I didn't speak much French, but I, I figured out the word depletion is for the same in French and English.
1: <laughs> Can you imagine doing that to a racehorse? Just being like, "Right, <laughs> we're going to not feed you." Run around that paddock until you basically fall over. And then, yeah, it's the Grand <laughs> National on Sunday.
0: But I still carry some of these uh, trends or lifestyle hacks. I don't know if you call them lifestyle hacks because that sounds positive. I still carry <laughs> some of this PTSD with me into the real world. So you, you hollow out the inside of your bread roll when you're at dinner yeah. in France. And you do this because the French say you don't want to get bread legs. Now I have looked up medical <laughs> journals since and it turns out that bread legs is actually not a real medical condition.
1: <laughs> wow, there's, there's, that's that's revelatory I think for a lot of people.
0: Well I'll be at a restaurant with my girlfriend and she'll be like what are you doing and I'll catch myself and it's like automatic I'm just I'm hollowing out the dough in the inside of my bread and I'll just nonchalantly say to her like it's totally normal. No, I just I'm riding tomorrow and I don't have bread legs. <laughs> just <laughs> what are you talking about you've lost your mind i
1: think i don't know if there's something some other element to that as well but i've seen um i've been at uh sort of like team camp stayed in the same hotel uh like Kalpi where quick step have been for example and you see the, you see them eating breakfast in the morning so it's not a race day they're on their training camp and you're there with like seven different types of international cuisine at your fingertips and a pancake <laughs> chef just for you and they've got some like big pot of gruel uh maybe if they're lucky some like Nutella or something or some honey on the table. And yeah, I've noticed the inside of the bread thing happening. And then it's, it's kind of mushed around in the rider's hands like this. And you realize it's, it's not they're taking the bread out of the middle because they don't want to eat it. They just need to hold something as like a kind of stress ball because their lives, their nutritional lives are so devoid of joy. <laughs> they just need to grip <laughs> this thing and turn, you know, when you turn the inside of white bread into that little like mulchy ball and they're yeah. all doing that. Tony Martin's there. You know, squeezing this bit of bread, or back as as was then, but yeah, the eating thing's mad. We talked to Sean Kelly on this podcast, and he was just like, "I just didn't have ice cream for about twenty five years." <laughs> there was just it's no no stopping. Even in the off season, it's like you do you don't have ice cream. That's really bad for you. High dairy, high sugar, bad for you
0: i've actually got a funny calpe story for us to finish up the today's podcast so a few years ago when i was still riding the bike full-time a bunch of my friends were with teams on post and other teams that all seemed to just descend on calpe for this winter training camp so i was out there with a couple of buddies of mine who were full-time bike riders as well but we were like busted for cash as full-time bike riders are We'd very little money and every, all the teams seem to stay in this hotel diamante i think it's called uh, yeah. in calpe and it's like the social center of Calpe everyone's hanging around there but one of my buddies on a team had said hey there's like a buffet uh, restaurant where you just literally walk along with your plate as much food as you want and I was like starving like no money for proper food so I came up with the ingenious idea to walk into the hotel lobby but to leave my shoes behind because nobody that didn't stay in the hotel would be walking around without shoes. And not having (laughs) shoes was like the access pass to the hotel where no one would question or ask you what room you were in or anything. I'd be like, oh, I'm clearly staying in the hotel or else I'm having a mental breakdown and walking around your hotel without my (laughs) shoes. So I was able to walk in and I got into the lift and I remember getting into the lift one day and the door opened and Bernie Eisel was in the lift and he was going up to the restaurant level. And I was just like... It was like the a scene out of the peep show where I'm having this internal dialogue, but I'm trying to play it real cool. I'm like in my head going, oh my God, it's Bernie on, it's Bernie Isle, Bernie Isle. But I just keep it together. I'm like, second floor place, Bernie. Like I'm one of the lads. <laughs> <laughs> had a nice fade, walked back out in my socks, got my runners from behind a trash can around the corner. It's rock and roll, folks.
1: Winner. Well, that's, that, that, that's how you do it. That's how you do Calpe.
0: Calpe on a budget.
1: Excellent. Well, Anthony, as ever, absolute pleasure. Um, we'll we meet again in a week or so's time for another excellent guest on the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Um, until then, I do hope that you keep up the training. I hope that stepstone back into getting into the sharp end of races and the desire to do that hasn't been curtailed by the catastrophic failure of your DIT. And I would like to point out it was a terrible idea to take electronics like that into a race <laughs> like the Rift. i didn't want to say it at the time <laughs> but no uh, anthony it's been an absolute pleasure my friend and i look forward to our next meeting
0: we'll catch you again in two weeks time folks thanks for tuning in